Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with Dr. Jody Russin on attachment-based family therapy. Hey there, all you Attachment Theory in Action listeners. Welcome back for another podcast. Today, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Jody Russin. And Jody will be joining us um, from the Virginia Tech Department of Human Development and Family Science, which is where she teaches and supervises and does research. Just a little bit about her. She came to Virginia Tech after completing a three-year postdoctoral research fellowship in family intervention science in Philadelphia. She has focused her career on adaptation, implementation, and dissemination of science in family psychotherapy. Her research is dedicated to vulnerable youth, particularly LGBTQ adolescents and young adults struggling with suicide, depression, trauma, and disordered eating. She is going to be talking with us today about attachment-based family therapy. She is a certified trainer and supervisor in this model and is going to be educating us about the model today. A little bit of other information about Dr. Russin. She grew up in a military family, so she lived all over the country. She completed her undergraduate degree in psychology at the University of Delaware. And it was there that she fell in love with the idea of helping other people and facilitating change. She went on to Towson University, where she received a master's degree in counseling psychology. And during her time at Towson is when she discovered her passion for family therapy during an internship that allowed her to work with adolescents. Through that experience, she realized that family therapy made change happen so much faster, which is especially critical when addressing suicide, which is one of her research areas. And she was seeing an impact on uh, this issue in family therapy much more effectively than individual therapy. So that is when she then went on to Drexel University and achieved her doctorate and um, did her postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Family Intervention and Science. And she was immersed there in research and furthering her expertise in clinical family research. And at that time was when she did become certified as a supervisor trainer in attachment-based family therapy. I am really excited to have her here as our guest today for an empirically validated attachment-based intervention with families, and I know you're really going to enjoy this interview, so she will be hopping on with us here in a minute. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back for uh, part two of our conversation with Dr. Jody uh, Russin about attachment-based family therapy. And we were going through some of the five treatment tasks um, in the previous uh, session, um, and 
looking at reframing the therapy to focus on interpersonal development, building alliance with adolescent and building alliance with parents. And I think now we could move on to facilitating conversations to resolve attachment ruptures. Now we're getting into some of the, the meat of it. it. You know, would you say this is moving beyond the preparation phase? Yes, yes. So uh, task four is um, repairing that, that connection. Task four is the attachment task. It's what we have been preparing for. It's the moment everybody has been waiting for. <laughs> um, once the youth is, is ready to disclose what has gotten in the way of their relationship with their caregiver and, and what experiences have been, what their attachment injuries and traumas have been. Um, and once caregivers are prepared to hear that, um, I mentioned before- I love that phrase, because they do have to be prepared to hear that. Yes, yes, and that's through the intergenerational work, but also through coaching them on how to use emotion coaching skills. So we find that once we do the intergenerational work, once we make the emotional connection between the caregiver's present and their past and how it's affecting their family, we find that they are motivated and ready to learn new skills. Without all of that, we don't have the motivation or buy-in to really do something different. And so once they have these emotion coaching skills, once they're ready, we bring everybody back together and we let the youth, we let the kid lead the session and talk to their caregivers about the things they're most afraid to talk about. Uh, uh, Guy Diamond and Suzanne Levy talk about activating the fear structure. If we want a corrective attachment experience, we have to ask our families to go in the room and talk about the things they don't want to talk about, that they're afraid to talk about. Because for us, attachment is about protection. When I'm afraid, who do I turn to? And we want the kid to have an experience where they're afraid, where they're being vulnerable, and their parent is able to respond to them. And so we want the content to be salient. We want the content to be about the ruptures and about the attachment themes. And we want the process to be right. So we want the caregiver to be responding to the kid, asking them questions, um, reflecting their feelings, uh, validating them. Um, and we're helping the caregiver to do this during the task four sessions as they struggle. I'm just going back to it again. I just think that preparation part is so critical because when you do this without that, and I think unfortunately in different ways we've been there and learned that the hard way, but I always think, oh no, it's the still face. I think the tronic paradigm and I think, oh my gosh, no, this is not what we want to be coming back, you know? Um, and I've, I'm also a therapy therapist and I'm, I've yes. also seen there's got to be preparation for that. If you want to orchestrate these moments of meeting and connection and safety, um, 
you know, we know the family system's always stronger than us. So if we haven't done enough work on intervening in that, my, you know, great idea about this TheraPlay activity is not going to change that. And I'm going to end up orchestrating something that is not helpful. Yes. Yes. We would agree with that, that it's about the preparation. And, yes. and as, as a TheraPlay therapist, I, I think you would agree with this too, that we are really serving as therapists as a secure base, not just for the youth, but for the caregiver as well. Yes. We're the temporary secure base for yeah. this family yeah. until we can turn the secure base back over to the caregiver. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100% agree. Are there obviously protecting confidentiality? Um, could you share some examples of things that have come up in these conversations there's got to be some that stand out in your mind or you've compiled for things that you wrote with um, identifying information removed or converging conversations or something I think it would be interesting to hear what has come out of some of those conversations to um, resolve attachment ruptures sure sure so uh, a little bit about me I specifically with LGBTQ plus youth and a lot of gender um, non-conforming um, non-binary youth as well and so that's kind of been my niche in, in ABFT and when I work with a lot of my trans identified youth themes of acceptance come up and these can be as small as my, my caregiver isn't using the right pronouns to my caregiver won't let me start gender affirming care. Um, my caregiver won't let me start uh, hormone replacement therapy. Um, they're afraid of what's going on. And so in the task four, we don't want the kid to just come up, go in and say, mom, you won't let me start gender affirming care. We want to say, when we went to the, to the uh, clinic to start this and you got cold feet and you left, it made me feel like you didn't understand me, you didn't see me, you didn't know how much this meant to me, you didn't really accept me in my identity. And so you didn't get me, and that's when I lost trust. That's when I thought that I really couldn't count on you to really know where I was. I felt really unprotected. Um, I, I really felt unprotected. And, that, and that's when I started turning to other people for help because I couldn't, I couldn't trust you anymore. And so that's just one of so many uh, narratives. But you can imagine, Karen, that it takes so much emotion regulation and so much tolerance for the caregiver to be able to hear something like that from the child they love. Yes. Um, and so part of the work, and I'm thinking of one case in particular, was helping mom to regulate and say, oh, I hadn't seen it that way before. You must have been really hurting. What was it like? To feel like you couldn't turn to me how did you feel at that time mm -hmm. and so that's that's one one example that we found and i can give you more i have a whole brain full of them um, but those are the kind of topics we discuss or you know mom you didn't know it but dad was abusing us and 
I know he's not living in the home anymore, but that affects me every day. And when when you you didn't believe me or when you didn't listen to me or when you didn't check in with me, that made me feel really abandoned. And so what we talk about too are our content and, and process ruptures. Um, we find that process ruptures are more of those kind of insidious criticisms or I can't turn to you because you'll put me down. Whereas content ruptures are these key incidents in a kid's life where they have felt unprotected, abandoned, rejected. Um, and for a lot of our families, there's a combination of both types of ruptures that we have to explore in task four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So could you say a little bit more about that? That's intriguing to me. The two yeah. Things. Yeah. Yeah. So again, process ruptures are, are those family interaction issues. Every time I go to dad, when I'm being bullied at school, he tells me to pull up my big boy pants and get back out there. Um, every time I, I go to grandma, um, to let her know that, that I'm really unhappy. She, she spirals out into her own stuff and doesn't really listen to me. And I feel like I'm a burden to her. Those are our uh, family interaction, communication issues that can get very insidious and devastate the landscape of trust between kids and parents. Then again, we also have those content ruptures. When I was um, eight years old, my mom left for a period of two years. I didn't know where she was. I didn't think she was coming back. And when she came back, we never talked about it. That would be a key episode that, that shook the trust relationship. Um, and so that, those are what we think about when we think about organizing uh, ruptures and the way we talk about them in attachment-based family therapy. Very, very good. Thank you. And then promoting autonomy and competency in the adolescent is the fifth treatment task. Could you talk to us some about that one? Sure. So when it comes to promoting autonomy, um, again, our, our developers would say that we do all of the task four work, all of the preparation work to get to task five, because task five is where life happens. Mm -hmm. That's when a kid gets back in soccer, when they start thinking about career or job or um, going to college. It's when they start talking about friends and romantic relationships, when they start talking about identity. Um, what does it mean to be a black man living in America right now? There's, there's a bunch of different developmental and um, life issues to address. And once we find the secure basis restored, caregivers can be an asset and a support to their children in having these dialogues about how to navigate life and how to make meaning 
out of life, how to make meaning about who they are and what their values are. And so we, we find that once we do good task for work, the family's capacity for having these conversations is improved significantly. Mm-hmm. And I know as a therapist, if I'm doing a task five session and I'm just sitting back and kind of saying a few things once in a while, we are done with therapy because that parent is now the secure base and they're effectively helping their kid navigate um, what their needs are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Really, really beautiful work that you're talking about. Um, another, if we could just step back maybe a little more macro here. Um, I mean, suicide is on the rise, especially large um, numbers in the population that you specialize in, but even just in general, and I'm, we have you here with expertise in a model specifically designed for that issue. And I'd love to hear just some of your thoughts in general about how and why this is on the rise, but also your response because I've seen this happen like repeatedly now, the suicide that comes out of nowhere. Like the family's like, uh, we had no idea, child didn't seem depressed. Um, Often it'll seem like the family then attributes it to a certain incident, like they didn't get into the college they wanted. And so that's why this happened. And I would just like your thoughts on both of those things, the, the rising rates of suicide and what you would say to the idea that it just came out of nowhere, there were no signs, the child doesn't have any diagnosable you know, mental health issues or something like this, which whatever order you would like to respond in. Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll take the latter first, the, okay. the question about out of nowhere. I'm, I'm, of course, you've heard this, right? I have heard this, yes. yes. And, okay. and so um, the literature shows that actually there are clear warning signs to detecting suicide and to understanding risk. And that's why there's a lot of really wonderful educational programs that help people learn how to see those warning signs um, more clearly and to ask the right questions. But, but yes, there are warning signs. There are detectable signs that someone is struggling or might be considering suicide, giving away things, becoming more isolated, having changes in their mood, having changes in their relationship, um, talking about not wanting to be here anymore. And as as educators, we find that, that the way to address this is helping folks, everybody, kind of know what to look for in each other to help identify and intervene early in, in the risk. And so there's programs like a QPR, a question... Um, Oh, well, I'm blanking. <laughs> QPR, yeah. question, um, persuade, request, I believe. Yes. Um, is to focus, help, help lay people. It was developed by lay people, not clinicians for lay people, to, to ask and think about um, suicide for early intervention. There's a lot of really great programs. ASSIST is one. Um, 
that, that is helpful in that. So I think we all have to combat the myth together that this happens out of nowhere and instead learn to see more of the warning signs as they come up. And I, I think I'd be curious about your response to this. I think some parents would say, I look over that list. None of that was happening. Mm-hmm. And it's your thought, maybe it was happening somewhere yeah, or it was hard for the parent to see that it was happening or, you know, because I, I've had, you know, folks say that, well, I've read those lists and there wasn't a single sign like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it takes, um, I would say it takes a village because people see different things in different people. Yes. And you know, I, I certainly, there's parents who may be disconnected to those things. There are parents who may be very connected and not see it, but do the teachers see it? Do you yes. see something different at school? Does the medical doctor see it? Do we screen in primary care? Yes. So I, I, I say it takes a village to look at these signs. Very and to good. To see it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your other point, um, I'm trying to remember what that is. Yeah, what was it? I I had these two questions. So it was, um, uh, why, just in general, why is this on the rise? Um, And why are we seeing, I mean, part of this is related to technology. Why is it on the rise? And why are we seeing things like, you know, a person convincing someone they're in a dating relationship or something like things that seem like, Oh, wow. You know, I don't remember hearing about this 10 years ago. Um, and it, again, we have different forms of social media, but just kind of overall, I guess this is becoming a, a epidemic. That's not an exaggeration, right? No, it's, it's. And why, why? Yes, and and I would say that the the question about why is is very population specific. So for LGBTQ plus youth or trans identified youth, the answer to that question might be similar and different. But I would say to answer this question overall, that I often fall back on on Thomas Joyner's uh, interpersonal theory of suicide. And um, there's been a lot of evidence, there's been a lot to support the idea that two factors contribute to suicide risk belongingness and perceived burdensomeness. And so those are about people's connections with one another. When people feel isolated or removed or like they don't belong, or if when they do go to people that are burdened, that really impacts us as social beings. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have to think about, um, as a society, where are our opportunities for connection? Where are our opportunities for emotional attunement? Um, because these might be the answers to, to address this issue, if we're thinking about the interpersonal theory of suicide. And of course, there's lots of theories. Yes. Um, there's, there's biological underpinnings, there's family of origin, there's trauma. But but because I'm a relational thinker, I turn toward the interpersonal theory of suicide. Yes, yes. Yeah, that word 
burdensome ness, you know, the feeling of being a burden. It's just, I, my, I just have this like sinking feeling inside, even with that language. It's just such a sad place for one to be. Yes, absolutely. And, and we find that many of our adolescents feel that. I don't turn to my caregiver because I'll just burden them. They have two jobs. They're taking care of my younger siblings. They're doing the best they can. I can't possibly put my stuff onto them. And that contributes to, of course, the thinking of someone, they'd be better without me. Yes. If one feels they're a burden. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'm very intrigued by this discussion. The work that you're doing is just really, really wonderful and, you know, so needed. These are clearly crisis situations. Um, and I imagine many people listening are wondering, how do I learn more about this or what training? And I know you've been, um, you know, widely published in the scientific literature. Um, I know there are books. I know there are trainings. I would like to give you a little time here to share where people can learn more, how this all works if one wants to be trained in your, in this model. Sure, absolutely. So I would say the place to start is by going to the Center for Family Intervention Science website. It's at Drexel University. Uh, that's where um, the folks who developed the model work. I, I worked in that center for five years. It's a well-established, well-known center. Um, the website is uh, pretty... Um, easy to use. You'll see that there's an ABFT tab, and then it will give information about publications and literature and um, how to locate the book on how to do the model. It will also give information about trainings. And so the place to start with training is either the um, one day or three day introductory training. Uh, to be to complete the introductory training, it is a total of three days, but there is an option to do day one and then days two and three later. And perhaps if you just want an overview of the model and figure out if this fits with you, then you would want to do the one day training. It's often also offered online uh, to get a taste of what this is. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a certification process and an advanced training for those who are really invested in this and really interested in uh, using this model with adherence and, and becoming much more well-versed. But again, I'd say the first place to start is the website. That's which houses. That's what houses all of the information we currently have. Yes, and you do have, um, you are an evidence based model and continuing to gather evidence and you do have um a manual i assume in the training you know that's all part part of yeah and understanding the manual understanding any kind of fidelity checklists and those kinds of things yes. um i would imagine that's all part of the training and it's wonderful to hear that you have the you know, sort of dipping your toe in it with this one day part and yes. th th that's even sometimes online. Um, so that's fabulous. So very, very nice. Um, and I would say too, just to follow up on the evidence-based part, if you are interested in reviewing the research 
been done with this model, that is all on the website as well, all of the publications that have come from it. And um, I do understand, and it's often not said evidence-based for what? So I appreciate you saying evidence-based for suicidality, but I would imagine there's broader application of this too that, that you're studying, thinking about, seeing, any final comments about that? Sure, absolutely. So the, the model has been developed for youth with depression and suicidality and with histories of trauma. In fact, we found that this model works well for those who have a history of, of early child sexual abuse as well. Um, however, in our supervisions, we are clinically applying this model to children with anxiety or children with eating disorders. I was going to ask about eating disorders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And so there is a much broader application for the tenants of this model. And the research on different issues is at different phases. But again, the model was developed for depression, suicidality, uh, with a specific focus on, on trauma as well. Good. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful. I know how very busy you are um, and that you've been doing training all over the world um, in this model. So I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today and share this beautiful work. Absolutely. It was lovely speaking with you. Well, goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Attachment Theory in Action.